Welcome to the Index Podcast, hosted by Alex Kahaya. Plug in as we explore new frontiers with Web3 and the decentralized future. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Index brought to you by The Graph, where we talk with the entrepreneurs building the next wave of the internet. I'm your host, Alex Cahaya, and today I'm speaking with James Hendler, the director of the Institute for Data Exploration and Applications and the Tetherless World Professor for Computer, Web, and Cognitive Science at RPI. He also serves as a member of the board of the UK's Charitable Web Science Trust and is the chair of ACM's Global Technology Policy Council. Handler is a data scientist with specific interest in open government and scientific data. I'm really interested to speak with you about that specifically. Also, AI and machine learning, semantic data integrations, and the use of data in government. One of the originators of the semantic web, he has authored over 450 books, technical papers, and articles in the areas of open data, the semantic web, artificial intelligence, and data policy and governance. James, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. So your background is pretty incredible. I, I love doing this show because sometimes I get to talk to people like you kind of were a part of the foundation of the internet. My partner, Brian Fox, who I've worked with for years is the author of The Bash Shell. You probably like cross circles with him back in the early days of the internet. But I just generally like love hearing the stories about how this was formed and the intersection of the work that you've done your entire life and where we are today is like, hey, this is like the full realization of the ethos that we wanted to see in, in the internet. I also like the open data standards and open government is something that's of personal interest of, to me. And like, I think we're seeing that implemented in these decentralized autonomous organizations in crypto, but there's also like this other world of actual government, like real world governments that need to use this stuff and could make the planet, you know, the world a better place if we adopted it. So yeah, very excited to cover all these topics. Would love if we kind of just start with a little bit of your background. You can maybe talk about yourself, just your work, why, why it's interesting to you, you know, what you're passionate about, kind of go from there. Many years ago, actually I was a junior professor and I was giving one of my first ever invited talks and the guy next to me was a guy who's super famous. He like, we know him nowadays as one of the guys who invented one of the first database languages and things like that. And, you know, won every award known and, you know, they're reading his bio and he just turns and looks at me and says, you just have to live long enough. That's kind of where I am in my career now. So I started AI actually back in the seventies, working with Roger Shank at Yale in the early days of the sort of takeoff of AI in the 80s, I got involved. So I've been doing AI for a very long time. And then as the web came along, one of the things I had felt for a long time was that the problem with AI was scaling. It was making it work in big, big. Nowadays, you know, we talk about big data, we talk about deep learning, that then we didn't have a lot of the kind of capabilities we needed to make that happen. And the web seemed to me be a place where a huge amount of information was coming together. So I sent my group to say, you know, what can we do with AI and the web to bring things together and really start looking at it? That got me working on web languages for AI and, and you know, now what we would call data science. And so it's sort of been a, a move in that direction. I, I, I went to spend a few years as a program manager at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, and sold them on this idea that we had to bring AI to the web. And, and a lot of it was about bringing data together. 
as I was putting together those ideas, I was lucky enough to intersect with Tim Berners-Lee, who obviously knew more about the web architecture than anyone who ever is or was, and, um, having invented it all. And, and he and I really started to hit it off in this space of, you know, how do we bring the data to the web? And that, you know, has sort of been now what I've been doing for the years since. So some of what I do is really AI traditional, but a lot of what I'm doing is how do we do open data, open data standards. As the web has become very platform and centralized, how can we really think about re-decentralization? How can we give people back control over their web interactions? That's the the thing I'm most excited about as far as what Web3 can represent the technology stack that's getting built. You know, I'd be really curious to pick your brain too, having seen these different phases, like you lived through them. My hypothesis is that the phase we're going through has different values built into the products that are getting built and the, and the way that technology is architected. But the actual like go to market and sort of the the transition we're going through might feel very similar to like web 1.0 like the very the dawn of the internet and like web 2.0 dawn of mobile and i think there's like a lot of lessons that builders in the space can take from those time periods and apply those lessons learned on how to drive growth and get like traction with these different products and whatnot i'd just love to hear your perspective there if you think that's correct what are some things you think that are transferable from like the web 1 web 2 kind of growth and whatnot and, and what things maybe we should leave behind let me play with vocabulary a little bit just because people are using things differently because, you know, there was the web. So when we talk about Web 1.0, there never really was 1.0. Web 2.0 was kind of a marketing term that actually was primarily around social media, bringing video. At, well, actually, it was photos and then later video to the web and that sort of stuff became more known for sort of opening the web to... Uh, a larger scale, and then the mobile parts. So in a sense, the web moved from your browser sitting on top of the internet to the web became part of that development stack itself. So now Facebook, Google, et cetera, built on top of a set of web protocols. Mm -hmm. As mobile came along, we saw some of the same things happening where, you know, again, people say, well, the web... The web or the internet, you know, doesn't really exist anymore because it's all on your phone. It's all mobile. We've had companies that try to claim it, but they're really still sitting on top of that same set of standards. And what really made the web happen was a lot of attention paid to keeping those standards simple, doable, and interoperable. And if you look at sort of what have been the successful technologies that have really taken off on the web. They're not always the things that had the biggest groups around them. XML was going to be the thing that, you know, turned everything on its head. But in fact, XML became just sort of an execution model, a, a way of doing stuff because people were starting to get more interested in data and it wasn't built around data. It was still built around documents. So data standards and things like that. So so groups like the World Wide Web Consortium in particular, but lots of others have been really more focused on how do you bring this kind of standards and make the web open for everyone. Well, but then you started getting this, this you know, again, different terms are used, but platformization is usually 
terms of, so what started happening was two things we didn't have in the original web standards stack really well. One was identity management and two was sort of control of data. So there wasn't data. So the semantic web and what was what used to be called web 3.0 really was about bringing data to the web. We used to call it the web of data. The, the elevator speech was, you know, my document can point to your document, but my database can't point to your database. So I can't say the value that fills this field in my data set is what you have in that field over there in your data set via just sort of the same kind of web link that I could say, you know, this paragraph in my document, just click here to go see his. So we started playing around with some of those kind of standards. And that was sort of what people thought what was being called Web 3.0 would be, would be that really bringing of data to the web. Around that same time, what started happening was because identity and because some of these other things hadn't been built in, these these larger companies that were starting to gather a lot of information started to have a real advantage. Either you had to know how to, you know, log into each one of your 300,000 different apps, or Google would come along and say, you know, log in as Google or log in as Facebook or log in as Amazon or whichever your favorite is. Right. And now you only have, you know, it made things convenient, but you were sharing a huge amount of information often without knowing it. And nobody was really reading the privacy things. Then you had cookies, second party cookies, third party cookies, you know, tracking things, Internet things. So so the economics of the Internet built around the use of data, private personal data. Let me call it personal rather than private at the moment. So the fact that you bought this thing on Amazon, right, started to become really what was powering the economics of the web. And that gave a tremendous advantage to those things that could collect the most of that data. So by getting you to sign into something through one of these services, they mm. can get your information, et cetera. So, so the web went from a very decentralized, very open space. Anybody could put stuff. You want your blog, you just throw it up things like that, to becoming more and more these few big players really were controlling a tremendous amount of the access in exchange for a tremendous amount of information. Now, you know, again, there could be, there were certain user advantages to that, certain disadvantages, Instagram, TikTok, all those things changed sort of the feel of how you're interacting with the web. But in reality, you're still, again, it's that same development platform. And that platform still doesn't really have a way to say, this is me. Recently, my I got one of these, your credit card has been used for, uh, you know, somebody ordered $21 of takeout from a 7-Eleven in California. Why someone stole my card number to get $21 of 7-Eleven, I won't ask. But so I got a new credit card number. Well, now we had to go to lots and lots of different sites and change that. And, you know, it would have been so much easier if I had something that said, anybody who I trust and I've given them my credit card number, look here when you want to know what my credit card number is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Of course, that means we need a model of trust and things like that. But, but I need an identity and I need to be able to put into that identity. Here's my credit card number. 
instead of having to go to fit all these different places, and I'm still discovering things. You know, I, I had the other day, I, a bunch of stuff wasn't working and I, I found, you know, something that my spam filter had pulled out where someone said, you know, your credit cards aren't working anymore. And so we've turned off your, you know, all your, your streaming subscriptions. Services. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. I hate that. And my credit card got hacked a while ago too. And I had the same thing. Exactly. You move. It's super annoying. You know, yeah. You move to a new house. Look at all the different places you have to change your address. So, so in a sense, we don't control that kind of data. That data is spread around and a lot of people do it. So a lot of what people have been talking about and now what's being called Web3, I'm being very careful here to sort of differentiate Web3.0, which was going to be that web of data, from Web3, which is this evolving world of NFTs, blockchain, et cetera, which really are focused primarily on that identity thing in some sense, right? You have yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's it's such an interesting. I love the corollary you just drew and like the way you broke out like what the original three versus Web three. The thing that like a, a lot of people in, in that work in crypto only think about Web three. I had never actually even heard anybody talk about three as being you know all about the data. But the distinction you make is very important, right? Like identity and linking the identity to the data and creating self-custody of your data as an asset and then enabling that because now you custody your own data in a way because it's stored on these like decentralized networks and accessed by your private keys it changes the paradigm right like it's a total paradigm shift in how we control and interact with the data and i, I just want to give like an example of something like literally is top of mind I, I just tweeted about this like 20 minutes ago, one of the companies that I own is this company Olaplex, and we built an on-chain social graph, which is like a, a very small program. It's a primitive. It's like one of those little underlying protocols you might reference, you know, as like things that make the internet work. Who you follow and who follows you is connected to your wallet address, and your wallet address is your identity. And we connect that. You can connect your wallet address to your Twitter handle, and now you've got like an actual name associated with the wallet address because you sign a transaction. It stores that data on chain. And I think you can see how how powerful and meaningful that little program can be for changing the way the economics of all these systems. If multiple social media platforms like start using this like on-chain social graph, now you get to take your audience with you. And they also benefit from the audience you have across multiple platforms instead of just one. And you can see how like NFTs, again, linking back to identities, credit card example, like what if every time you set up your credit card, your payments infrastructure to a subscription service, you had that linked to an NFT that was revocable, right? So you could just revoke or swap out it with a new one that authorizes charges from the same account, the same identity. Then you have the flexibility to just like, I just did this like two weeks ago, the same thing you did where like, I had to go change like 30, you know, credit card accounts. It was terrible. Exactly. But now let's talk about the problem, mm. right? Which is... We've just solved one problem at the cost of another, right? And the problem we've solved is, okay, so now you're giving me a wallet. And, and frankly, you know, we can get into a long debate that's not worth having at the moment about, should I have a unique one? Am I allowed to have multiple ones? You know, can I have different personalities? You know, maybe I want to keep my, my job separate from something else, or maybe, you know, again, I have a sexual identity that I really don't want to share with, uh, you know, my standard thing, you know, what is identity and what is anonymity comes into some of this. But let's just assume that 
wallet IDs or something similar to that will be our unique identifiers. And if I want to have more than one, I control that. Problem becomes, how do I control it? So how do we get interoperability without recreating the platform problem? So mm -hmm. in other words, if there are 72 different blockchain things I'm using out there, and they each one are giving me a different identity, and I'm keeping that, you know, whether I'm calling it one wallet or 72 wallets, either way, I still have to manage all that. I have to say, this guy's allowed to see this, and this one's allowed to see this, and hey, if somebody puts, you know, if somebody wants to put an advertisement on my page, do they get, do they go through my wallet, or do they go through this, you know, current models? One challenge is this gives us a new decentralization. This gives us the ability for lots of those little services. But the need for the kind of thing you described is is exactly what's there, which is that we need some interoperability there so that I don't have to. Now I have to go to 30 websites and tell them all that I've changed my wallet ID. Or if I have to go to 30 different wallets, if I have, you know, 12 different cryptocurrencies that I'd like to ignore the difference and I just want to have a bank account. There's this part of the web which wants to be anarchistic and free. There's this part of the web which says the more we centralize, the more we trade off privacy and control for convenience. There's got to be like a middle ground, right? Like, I don't know what it is exactly, but my hunch is that wallet applications that are multi-chain are part of that solution where you can kind of like hold your identity. And if you have like that wallet is secured by private keys itself, like the actual app, and then it's got multiple, you know, other sub wallets that you can manage from there, that feels like one avenue where you can kind of but then you start running if it's not open source especially right then you start running into the platform issue right like right. i think if so you have an open source wallet that's multi-chain and interoperable then you start getting some real good opportunity it's either open source or there are some standards around so for example the effort known as with tim as one of the tim berners lee is one of the people who's promoted and uh, I'll say right now, I haven't been heavily involved in the solid thing. I've been following at a distance, but, you know, it is one one of several efforts to really look at exactly this issue of, of how do we start getting interoperability? You know, so, so again, you asked me the lessons to learn from those old games, right? Prior to the World Wide Web protocols, you actually had a lot of different file sharing protocols around. And what the web did is it said, hey, here's a way we can pull those things together, right? Same thing sort of has happened with search, with, with social networks, with, with some of these other more multimedia platforms. You know, e each time there's been something where it kind of splits apart and too many things happen, and then a few big players can come in and start taking over, right? And, and the way to avoid that is only through standards so the small players can kind of gang up together the the mm -hmm. best example of is originally some of the large bookstore sites right had a no agents allowed here you know if you have a selling butt you're not allowed to come look at my thing if people want to buy from this store they got to come to 
my page. Well, so now what happens is a whole lot of little stores get together and say, please come to my store. <laughs> please comparison shop. Right. And so now people started going there. So some of the bigger players suddenly said, hey, I have to let those things in. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because we didn't have this identity thing. So that and then the second problem, of course, is how we're going to manage this, you know, cryptography in general, you know, file cr- cryptography and things like that. The biggest challenge hasn't really been the technology. It's been the user interface. How many keys do you have? How do you manage them? Are they hierarchical? Who's allowed to see what? And again, we now have this world of that stuff taking off all over the place. So so some of us think what, what really needs to start happening is, is thinking about the operability of that and thinking about the user interface or the control of that. Right. So if for every website I have to tell it what I'm willing to share, uh, that's a lot of work. And so what I'm going to end up doing is just clicking that one button that says, you know, Google, take care of this for me or, or you know, whatever the new winner is in this space will do it for me. And then that becomes the new centralization. The other option is we either come up, as you said, there seems like there should be an intermediary space. You know, one of the groups I know is looking at this from a uh, economic point of view, right? We will manage your, your your that wallet stuff for you in exchange for, you know, basically when I go, most people don't realize this, but when I go to a website, you know, a real-time auction occurs to say who gets to put the ad on my phone, right, or on my webpage or whatever, right, based on how much they know about me and how tailored to me that ad is so if all they know is i'm you know some old white male they'll put 30 cents for that ad but if they know that i'm you know a professor who's done this 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 and has bought all these things stuff like that they say hey that ad's worth three dollars to me right or these intermediary companies are saying look you tell us what you're willing to share kind of in these general ways We'll manage that for you in exchange and and you'll get a piece of that that value. Right. So when someone pays three dollars for your ad because you gave them more information, right, we'll take a share of that and then we'll pass the rest to you. So now suddenly, you know, whatever your account is is making some money. And for most of us that would be, you know, very small amounts and you know, just convenience, but for some, you know, the equivalent of influencers who are, you know, able to get a million followers. And that right. Could be, could be quite, lu- quite lucrative. Yeah. You know, sort of, so there'd be an economics around this. So that's one model. Another model, of course, is a free and open model that where you can, you know, you've got some web ID page and you control it yourselves. And then if companies want to help sell you management services for that, that just becomes another market, but they're not taking your data. They're just helping you man yours. So, so there's been a lot of discussion in the emerging Web3 community about what to do to bring it together. Most of the people have been focused on the new technologies. You know, in fact, that that micro, I, I forget the term you used for the the thing you did. Social graph. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you had a word for it as a a piece that can get inserted into lots of other things. Yeah, yeah, it's um, a lot of that. 
and, and yeah, it's no, I mean, it's open source pieces of software, right? So it's, it's a skinny protocol, right? They could just be kind of put. It's a exactly. it's a standard. It's, it's something that can be put into a lot of things. And, it's just an and, example and of right a standard. Now, right now, most of these players are competing over that space. So finding a way, finding so so you know, my my lessons learned from being a webby since before anyone knew that word is really that we 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 need as a community of users to be thinking about as these things are emerging and as we see these larger things start to form what are the upsides what are the downsides you know i've become much more involved in the policy world nowadays because we're gonna have to get government regulation to this it's not my favorite thing i was a big proponent of the early days of the open internet everything being free uh, but you know, we've re we we're in a different world now where, where trolls and, and things like that can bring things to their knees. And again, so now people are saying, well, blockchain will solve all that because, you know, no one will be able to get in without this, that, and I'm like, well, but you know, does, does friends on, on, you know, a social network platform solve that problem? Well, yes, for that platform, but not in general. So. I think we need some really new thinking about blockchain interoperability. You know, blockchains live underneath a, a bunch of protocols that say who's allowed to do, do things. You know, some I think there's a lot of AI potential in there. One of my young colleagues is doing some phenomenal work in there. She was actually Tim's PhD student and uh, is now a faculty member of my school. And, and you know, it's just like you start to see that the potential for rediscovery of some of what made the web work in the early days with the ability to hook things together, but not the necessity to do it. We've talked like a lot about standards and I'm wondering if you just like quickly could list off what are like five examples of standards that you think need to be created? Like I mentioned the social graph as an idea of a standard that I think needs to be built and we've built a version maybe it becomes a standard maybe we someone else contributes and makes it you know whatever like i just would love it to be a standard but you know what are some other things that you think should be standards identity was another one you mentioned so identity is right identity is yeah it's like a couple but identity and identity monitoring but you know there's um a, a company called Inrupt, and I have nothing to do with them. I just happen to know them well because Tim Berners-Lee is the head of it. But, you know, they're looking at sort of what they're calling a, a data pod, right? You keep a set of data in a data pod, and that can be used. And they're using these protocols, these solid protocols. Part of it. I think that that sort of thing is a piece of it. So right now, I manage on each of my different platforms who are my friends and how I connect to them? How do I, you know, I have to know this person would rather get something through an IM and this person would rather get something through email and this person wants to get interrupted by, you know, Slack, Discord, whatever we call those. You know, wouldn't it be nice if I could just maintain one list that sort of says, here are my friends and either here's the IDs they've shared with me you find the best, you know, there you go. So the best way to send out a message. So, so, yeah, I mean, look, that's, this is the thing that I'm so excited about. And this to my family, but under the current model, right? If I don't have a way to control that, then send this to my family is 
I got to tell this one what my family is, and this one it's a different family, and that one, and and you know, sort of who is your family, and you know, who are my social con, and so managing all this stuff grows out of hand, and people start to say, you know, I look at password managers, right? The number of people who tell me those are too complicated. So instead, what they do is they keep in their head two hundred variations of the same phrase. And then have to remember, wait, is that the one where I use the at sign or the A? Is that the four or the A? You know, again, we we recreate these problems at a new level unless we really are thinking about them. So I think I think management of your own identities. I think so. Again, my I want a friends list that doesn't live in a particular app. I want a friends list that I can point apps at, and maybe I have multiple of them. This is actually like what the social graph is. It's essentially a friends list. And one of the cool things about this space, why I think we can succeed in Web3 is because at least the projects that choose to be radically open source and compose their software together enable exactly what you're talking about. So I, just to give you an example. So uh, we built this indexer that indexes every NFT on Solana. And it can actually index any program, any protocol on Solana. And we're radically open source. So these other companies came to us and they were like, hey, we have a messaging protocol for like sending messages. Like we could build an email client. We could build a Slack client. We could build whatever kind of client you want that sends messages. And so we were like, hey, let's index your stuff and then let's integrate it into our products. And we can, because the indexer queries across multiple protocols. So if you think about like an operating system, right? The middle layer of an operating system allows protocols to communicate with each other. That's kind of what we're doing with this, this indexer. And so now you can power these applications. I have a, a, a friends list to these people and wherever they choose to see their messages, the message shows up because I follow them and I can, and I've got that address book and I can send them stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, so the question becomes, you know, again, when you talk about standards, when doing it, you know, something, sometimes something becomes a standard just because it's the first one and everyone's using it and it's great. Uh, I hope for your sake, you win that one. Other times, we'll see. <laughs> other times there's an organization that gets together and says, and this is really what the World Wide Web Consortium has done forever, right? They bring they bring competitors together who say, hey, look, if we can standardize this, you know, HTML was one of the first examples, right? 20 different HTMLs and each browser supporting its own, which, believe me, I lived through, was not pleasant. Yeah. Once you started having the real groups that got to, you know, the HTTP protocol, people forget the P stands for protocol, but that's an actual protocol. It's expanded over time. It's grown. It was built to allow that. But, you know, it had a lot of it made it so these things could talk together. Then the second thing happening was open source. So, you know, libwww, which most people haven't heard of anymore, was the original open, essentially CERN released the open source code for the web. And if you wanted a web server, all you had to do is, you know, you got this, you got someone who knew enough about server end stuff that they could change the 12 variables they needed and get the permission from your sysadmin to open up a port, which back then was easy because no one knew what ports were and they were all open. And suddenly you were on the web. 
right? And of course, as that grew and as that became problematic, then we needed controls and things like that. I feel like we're in that same sort of early uncontrolled stage with a lot of these Web3 things. I think what we're going to see is some protocols that grow up that really are helpful in that intermediate space. And we're going to see some that where we really need formal formal agreements, in part because we're not going to get rid of the big players, right? They're going to be there. You're not going to be able to make a new world of social networks that doesn't include the company that now calls itself Meta. You know, the famous example of this in the early days of the web, everyone assumed IBM was going to own everything, mm-hmm. right? Because that, well, that's actually with the early days of the internet. So the, the web and the internet aren't the same thing. And I have a wonderful photo somewhere of Tim Berners-Lee standing next to Vint Cerf and Vint is wearing a, a shirt that says, I didn't invent the World Wide Web. And Tim is wearing a shirt that says, I didn't invent the internet. But That's funny. Don't go there. But, you know, but this whole interoperability space, right? Again, we tend yeah. to go through this thing of decentralization and then a realization that now you're doing too much work to manage everything and we pull things back together. That tends to form these mega platforms. And I think, I hope this time people can really stay focused on sort of interoperability, simplicity, allowing a lot of different entities to do it and personal control, really the ability that whether I do it by outsourcing or whether I do it by my own management, I'm still in control of more of my data. You know, gosh, I read a paper the other day. You know, how the heck are we going to do forgetting on the blockchain? Like forget, like, like GDP unfollow. Uh, yeah. 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 Unfollow, but also, you know, GDPR says I have the right to tell you. Oh, to forget. Yeah. About me from your system. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Hard to but say. Um, policy space and, and the laws concerning privacy on the web are just catching up to what we've been referring to as web two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right as Web3 is coming along to make them to make them all outdated. So, yeah, it's, you know, I think like a lot of the components that make up what I what I'm starting to view as an operating system for Web3 are starting to be there. And the operating system consists of all of these standard protocols, these standardized protocols that you've been talking about, like they are part of what I think is a larger decentralized open source operating system. And, you know, indexing, which is what the graph does is indexing is actually like, like a very core layer of that operating system to stitch everything together. That's definitely something I've learned over like the last six months as we've been building some of the products that we've been building at, at Olaplex, like the NFT related stuff. We're getting towards like the top of the hour. And I just, I always ask this to my guests towards the end of the show, you know, what have I not asked you that you would have liked to talk about or that I should have asked? I love it when people end with that question because I always have an answer, except this time you actually hit on, you let me talk enough that, <laughs> that I said most of what I wanted to say. But, but what I would say is that, so the problem is this. Right now, a lot of the people who are pushing Web3 as a phrase, as a term, as a paradigm, are really about making money off of it, not about doing these open standards, not about coming together, not about doing it. So so you talked about that new operating system. The problem is if that new operating system becomes 15 
new semi-interoperable or non-interoperable operating systems, we haven't really solved anything. And there's more money to be made in me being the one who, you know, did the right thing, right? You know, uh, Bezos made a lot more money off of the web than Berners-Lee. Right. Mm -hmm. But we need some people who are going to do the thing that Tim did at the beginning, create these open source things, help find the small but crucial pieces where real standards or recommendations or whatever can be out there. So a lot of companies start saying, hey, we'll use this. I, I think we'll really will see a revolution in some of that control stuff. But the other direction is think few big players who managed to pull things yeah i mean this is why this is why i focus on open source so radically right like i mean i just think if you're if you really believe in the vision that we're both talking about it has to be done open source and and then if if that's the case and data is stored on chain and in decentralized architectures then it's like who can ship the best distribution of this operating system, right? Like whoever does that, then, you know, it, at least users have choice at that point. Right. Then you and, can and just use a different distribution and take your data with you. Right. And who can build me the right services? So, you know, yeah. again, nowadays people sitting between this laptop and that laptop are making an OS decision, but mostly they're doing it based on, you know, hey, I like the feel of this pad or this device yeah. or this one. Yeah, laptop. So, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you completely that. But, you know, my my one thing, if I can give one message to the world is don't forget we're talking about users and we're talking about lots of users and we're talking about lots of different users. And, you know, my dream is the day I, I've, I've been quoted on this a few times as saying, you know, my dream is the guy who wants to fix a problem in Bangalore somehow discovers the guy who fixed a similar problem in his neighborhood in Baltimore, despite the fact that they speak different languages, they look at the world differently, they think about things differently, but this information world of ours helps them find each other and cooperate and, and do the right thing. So, you know, the social good of getting this stuff right rather than getting lots of people rich is still what keeps me engaged in the web and what I think is still so exciting about its future. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's a wonderful note to, to wrap on. I think everyone should take that to heart. And thanks so much for being here today, James. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. You just heard the Index Podcast with your host, Alex Kahaya. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a five-star rating and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your favorite streaming platform. New episodes available every other Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in.